You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcast. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook or Instagram. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows Trio programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former Trio staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with Trio. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Amelia, for that wonderful introduction. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In this episode, we have Dr. Brittany Murray. Dr. Murray is an alum of the Trio McNair program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Murray is on the podcast to discuss her educational journey, share with us her pandemic experience, and her role as an assistant professor at Davidson College. So coming up in just a bit, Dr. Brittany Murray. This is a great episode. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Brittany Murray for coming in and talking about her experiences, uh, not only through her undergraduate, but her graduate uh, program as well. And it was just a great time talking about uh, Trio McNair and uh, education and the role it plays in society. So I can't wait for you all to listen. I want to thank our sponsors, Angelica Vialpando, Rosario Riley, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for continuing to support the podcast. You too can become a patron of the podcast. Head on over to Patreon, search for Let's Talk Trio. We have a variety of patron levels. Our beginning patron level starts at a dollar a month. A dollar a month goes a long way in supporting this podcast. If you own a business and would like to advertise on the Let's Talk Trio podcast, head on over to Patreon. Again, search for Let's Talk Trio. Scroll all the way down for our corporate sponsorship. Corporate sponsorship is at $100 a month. For $100 a month, we publish your ad on this podcast for as many episodes as we publish for that month. Do you have a staff member or a student that you would like to hear from on the Let's Talk Trio podcast? Nominate them. Send us their contact information on letstalktrio at gmail.com. The email again is L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. Or get a hold of us via our social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. A great interview coming up again with Dr. Brittany Murray, graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Trio McNair alum. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview. Five, four, 
three, two, one. Hi, Trio Nation. My guest on the Let's Talk Trio podcast is an assistant professor of educational studies and political science at Davidson College and is also an alum of the Trio McNair program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Our guest completed a Bachelor's of Arts in Public Policy and earned a doctorate in education focusing on policy, leadership, and school improvement, both degrees from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She has done extensive research in education. Her interests and hobbies include gardening, organizing, and doing science, science experiments with her three kiddos. Please welcome Dr. Brittany Murray to the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Dr. Murray, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pr- pleasure to be here. We are so honored to have you on the podcast, and thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast because we connected kind of on a whim on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Twitter has been my main go-to. T- that's been my only source of social contact to the <laughs> outer world these days. So yeah. it, it, that's where all my new contacts are coming from for these days. So it's been great to have a little net social network, you know, of professional colleagues and peers on Twitter to engage with. So it was great meeting you. And thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So how are you and how are things in Davidson, North Carolina? Ooh, well, it's beautiful here. I will say that. Um, but I, I mean, I'm just exhausted as I'm sure most parents and especially parent, uh, academicians are at this point. I mean, just trying to get through these last few classes of the semester and, you know, deal with the pandemic parenting, um, I'm in survival mode, but I will say that I'm enjoying these beautiful days outdoors because it's been nice after a long winter of being cooped up inside to get outside and actually see a little bit of Davidson and explore the campus a little bit more and see the area. It's really beautiful here. That is amazing. So springtime is certainly starting to spring over there, no pun intended. Yes, it is. And uh, you mentioned one of my hobbies was gardening. I'm itching. I've been itching to get outside. I haven't as a first year professor, I haven't had the time (laughs) to (laughs) to do the gardening that I usually do, Um, especially being in a new place away from, you know, most of my family. I've had to focus on, you know, like I said, survival, getting through the day, taking care of the kids, dinner, you know, the routine. So I haven't been able to engage in as many of my hobbies as I would like to as a result of the pandemic, but right. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to it. I will say yeah. that. So you you said you like gardening. Is there any particular plants, shrubs, or trees that you really like to garden? Um, do you have a particular skill set on that? So I've been for the last few, so it's so interesting. I um, used to do, I was in Teach for America I guess in 2011. And that was one of the first things I did with my students was we started a community garden. And ever since then, I've just loved starting up vegetable gardens. So, you know, I've done a little something in almost every place that I've lived since. Mm. And, you know, at, at my last home, um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, but I actually commuted from High Point. You know, we built some really nice garden beds with the trellis over top and mm. um, got, you know, some really great crops going. And I'm anxious to continue that here. So mostly vegetable crops. And and um, I just really love, you know, the springtime flowers and shrubs and trees. And, you know, once I get settled again, I'd love to get more into that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the pandemic earlier about how it mm-hmm. affected everybody, right? We had to, in the winter, everybody was already cooped in. It's like, we couldn't really yeah. go out much anyway. Um, this pandemic has really affected everyone differently. How did it, this pandemic affect you personally or professionally? Whew. Oh, goodness. 
this is a, a, a it's been a huge thing for me. I, you know, that's why I say I focus on that word survival because every day, you know, I'm grateful to be alive for one that I have survived another day of this and have been relatively, of course, fortunate compared to so much loss and, and grief that so many are enduring. Um, but it, when I say that it has been a struggle, I really mean that both personally and professionally. Um, I defended my dissertation. Uh, actually, I mean, if you think about the beginning of the pandemic, I was in the middle of writing a dissertation when it hit. And, yeah. um, you know, I was, it was just difficult from day one because, you know, the kids are no longer in school. Um, you know, I have no childcare. Um, and so I'm working to finish up a dissertation and then we, um, we moved during the pandemic, you know, to, we relocated to this new job, which fortunately I was able to secure before kind of the fallout on the academic job market hit. Yeah. And, um, but the, the moving process was tough on us because it meant that we're moving to a new place at a time where, building new social connections is discouraged, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we felt really isolated from, you know, we moved away from family and close friends to live here and haven't really been able to get out and meet people. You know, uh, I've been working in a building that I don't know my way around yet (laughs) as a new professor. Um, I only see students, you know, in masks. So I cannot identify hardly a single student that I've actually taught this semester in person. <laughs> right. Um, so it, it feels like very much like together alone, you know, <laughs> or alone together, right. um, you know, and just having to, there's just been this huge learning curve uh, that I've had to navigate. And luckily I'm, I work with some really incredible people who have, you know, lent their support and who text me to check on us and make sure we're okay and email and, you know, try to make sure that I get there, but you really can't replace the in-person experience. But I would say the move and starting this new job in a, in a um, pandemic year where you're not able to rely on those social connections has been, has been really tough, especially hard on the kids, you know, for them to move from the only home that they've known to um, a new place and not be able to go to their, you know, weekend birthday parties or, or do their, um, go to church or, or, you know, celebrate any of the act in the ways that they used to was really tough. And so I'm concerned that they attribute their social life stopping to this move to Davidson rather than mm-hmm. understanding that it is, things will look much better once we're, once life is back to normal. So it all kind of coincided, but we're, we're getting there. That's good. And I'm excited to be newly vaccinated and encourage everyone to go and, and get vaccinated so we can try to get things back to normal. <laughs> Absolutely. So a message to our audience if you can. Ever possible. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 2020 was certainly a roller coaster of a year. What lessons did you take away from 2020? The lessons I took from 2020, um, you know, I think what really <laughs> stuck out to me was realizing that our days are numbered. You know, we don't know the day, mm. we don't know the hour. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this that we cling so tightly to mm-hmm. can be taken from us sure can. at yeah. any minute, you know. And so I think <laughs> that realization that that, um, you know, that uncertainty about everything, the uncertainty around finances, the uncertainty around, you know, life, the uncertainty around our family and friends surviving this thing 
has just made me um, appreciate, you know, the life that I'm given and also made me want to just live it to the fullest, you know, and not wallow in my fears or anxiousness around, um, you know, performance or deadlines or, you know, so many of these things that we stress out over every day, you know, this year has shown me just <laughs> how little those things matter in the grand scheme mm. of things. And you really mm -hmm. have to take the time mm -hmm. to enjoy your life, Absolutely. live it, you know, enjoy your friendships and your family and relationships um, and try things that, you know, it, <laughs> that you were afraid to do and just, just be fearless, you know? So I think that is the biggest thing I'm taking away from 2020. Live your life to the fullest. You, you just never know when it's going to be right. taken from you. Right. And there's That's no right. amount of planning you can do <laughs> to <laughs> prevent so your life from being taken from you. You know, you can't control it. So <laughs> that is so absolutely true. Right. We've found out in the mm -hmm. pandemic about, you know, people missed out on concerts, missed out on traveling, missed out on family, mm -hmm. missed out on a lot of things. So I think the the what you're saying is not taking things for granted and just kind of living everything to the fullest. And mm -hmm. that is, I think, a strong message to send. To, to the audience um, who, you know, maybe they're contemplating uh, starting a doctoral program or a master's. When, when is a good time, right? Start now. Yeah. Do it. Now. Yeah. Do it absolutely. now. Do it now. Nothing to lose, you know, absolutely. Everything to gain. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Uh, what new skill or hobby did you pick up during this quarantine? The new skill or hobby that I picked up, <laughs> I've had to learn how to be a kindergarten teacher this year. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I mentioned earlier that I have three little ones who mm -hmm. um, I've had to manage through the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we've had some struggles with virtual schooling this year. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. kind of on and off. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it just wasn't, um, it was, can you imagine virtual kindergarten? I mean. Oh, no. <laughs> <and> then, <laughs> What it does that like, even look like? <laughs> I would imagine that it's like trying to Zoom call with a bunch of cats. That's what I yeah, would exactly. equate it to. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what it looked like. Uh, and, and, you know, the teachers, I just take my hats off. I mean, they did the absolute best they could. But one of the things that we struggled with is that, you know, we... Um, we have multiples, you know, <laughs> so I have right. twins yeah. that are trying to log on to, you know, virtual kindergarten every day oh my. in the same, we have to be in the same, they have to be in the same room to kind of help keep all the, they're too small to kind of be completely right. independent. Right. Right. And so the keep them on task had to be together, but then there were these audio issues, right? Like they're both logged into the same classroom on Zoom. And so now when one kid talks, like they're getting the feedback from the other tablet, oh, you know, no. uh, and then there, <laughs> it, it was, it was, there were all kinds of technical challenges that we just did not foresee with yeah. it. And, um, you know, yeah. they, they, they had had little experience with school in the past. And so to introduce them to school through this, these means, it, it felt like it was kind of you know, taking away their, their excitement and joy about school and learning. And so I say that I've had to kind of become a kindergarten teacher was, if you could see, I could uh, show you my background here, if I can take off my, um, sure, sure. my uh, Zoom filter here, but, you know, I've had to kind of turn my dining room into a kindergarten classroom. Um, and so I've been trying to learn how to teach little five and six year olds how to read and mm -hmm. how to count and, um, 
it has that's been my new skill or hobby. Uh, I actually have taught K twelve in the past, but I was a sixth grade teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Ah, so you can yeah, you're, see you're... my classroom here. Dr. Murray's uh, room that we're in very much looks like an elementary uh, room, a classroom. Yeah. And so, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I always joke that I teach at both ends of the spectrum every day. <laughs> <laughs> to your credit, which is amazing because virtual learning is very difficult for parents to be involved with. Uh, I, I, at least I found, you know, with my yeah. high schooler and my middle schooler, I was like, you're fine. You're going to do great. And I could listen mm-hmm. to them. It was my youngest one that I struggled with trying mm-hmm. to get him to engage and feel the online learning and yep. actually do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, God bless the parents right now. <laughs> Every single one of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So what are you looking forward to doing now that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic? I hope, I hope. I am excited about, you know, coming off of that last conversation, getting the kids back in school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Y'all got to get out of my house. <laughs> Absolutely. I love you to death. I love you so much. I've enjoyed squeezing your little cheeks and having you come find me all times of the day and, you know, consoling you and fixing your meals. I've loved it, but it is time to go. <laughs> so I'm definitely looking forward to, but it's more than just like sending them off to be in school, right? It's about being able to be connected to a community again, Absolutely. you know, and feel. Yeah. Like I have a role in, you know, creating something and I get to build relationships and contribute to something larger that's going on and, you know, help my kids kind of integrate into a larger community life outside of just the family. You know, I think that extra time at home is fantastic to to build a sense of identity and to, um, you know, help kind of understand what we value as a family. But it's I'm, I'm excited to help them navigate friendships and and institutions and all of that. So I'm, I'm really excited to see them grow and blossom and be more of who they are. So absolutely. That's wonderful. Um, so really want, we want to go back to your origin story, kind of throw it all the okay. way back for us. Uh, talk to us about you growing up. What was your childhood like? I had a really amazing childhood. I, um, I got to grow up around family, you know, families mm-hmm. is, is big for me. You know, I grew up in a small town called Monroe town where everybody were, they were the Monroes. So we were in Monroe town, you know, so (laughs) this little circle in in a play in Pinehurst, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Pinehurst is very well known for the U S open that comes there, the golfing. It's a resort community, very white, very affluent. And we were Mm. actually a, a, you know, we were a black neighborhood, you know, poor black neighborhood in the golf course in a very rich municipality and the golf course like literally wrapped around my neighborhood. And, Mm. but we were in this ETJ space. So that we were not considered actually a part of Pinehurst. And so like all the city amenities that Pinehurst was able to get access to did not extend to us. So it was years before we got like city water and street lights and police patrol and all, all those things that came with what the city had to offer. Yeah. Um, but it was really, really great growing up where I could walk next door and mm-hmm. I was at my aunt's house, either direction, right? <laughs> Any direction I walk, 
and I'm in, I'm at my aunt's house. My cousins were out all the time. And it's one of those neighborhoods where we're up until we're outside until the streetlights came on playing kickball and red mm. light, green light. And yeah, you know, it was just great to grow up in that kind of environment. Um, and again, build that strong sense of identity, strong sense of community. Um, you know, being able to walk from my house to my grandma's house and, you know, visiting, you know, I think a lot about <laughs> the great, you know, how the great migration, um, it, you know, really how I experienced it as like, you know, third, three generations removed from it or two or three generations removed from it because our, I, you know, when our family that was living in New York and New Jersey and all these places up North that had moved in the thirties through the fifties. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, they were coming down regularly. Right. So, and they were coming down to stay with their siblings and, and it was so great to have all that family come in um, at different times and just to enjoy that and kind of get that, that really kind of cultural experience, right. Of visiting with cousins that were, you know, native to New York. Right. Instead of, so I just, I mean, I I really had a thriving, um, home life. And so, um, I, I really enjoyed that having that foundation. And I think that really prepared me to go on and really, um, have a strong sense of self in school. And I, um, it, I did well in school. I, I was fortunate enough to go to really great schools. It had a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, that, <laughs> that was something that just really helped propel me forward. You know, my mom was a huge advocate for me and she stayed in the classroom and kind of making sure the teachers didn't just brush me aside as they, as teachers can sometimes so often do with, you know, black kids with poor kids. And so mm-hmm. she really advocated for me, um, and made sure that, you know, I was, I was tested for gifted classes or I was, um, you know, on, had access to, um, the highest, um, track courses, right. I remember it being a push, you know, around having, being able to get me in some, um, AP and IB courses around eighth grade, you know? So, you know, she was my biggest supporter, biggest cheerleader, and it really opened up what I was able to do in life. That's amazing. Having that support system. Absolutely. Amazing. What did your parents, guardians notice about you as you were growing up? Because you, you mentioned your mom mm-hmm. wanted to give you every test for, for gifted, uh, maybe even doing that. Mm-hmm. So, so were, were they noticing something about you that you gravitated toward education? And it was just something natural that came to you? Or what were they noticing about you at that point? Yeah, absolutely. I think they noticed that I was very independent. And so mm-hmm. I was and I was like a self-starter and, um, you know, I could do many, you know, many things on my own. And I was I was driven and. You know, I was in some sense a perfectionist and, you know, I was really (laughs) I wanted to do well. And I and I I think they saw that potential in me really early on and wanted to make sure that, um, you know, the barriers that stopped so many of my peers wouldn't get in my way. And that took a lot of um, advocacy to do. And I'm really grateful for it. Um, But, yeah, you know, I I don't think that I was so much more special than anyone else. I think it, it was just the. Um, it was honestly having an advocate. It was um, having opportunities in schools. It, it, you know, it was having someone at home to make sure that I uh, stayed on top of my work and joined every club possible. You know, my mom 
knew what it was going to take to get me through college, get me to mm-hmm. college. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she pushed me really hard to join every club and to, um, you know, bring home nothing less than an A. You mm-hmm. know, I got the talk quite often of, you know, you have to be twice as good to get half as far. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So I had, you know, I like hard work was a requirement in my house. You know, it was, um, you know, the expectation that I performed really well. And so um, she knew that I, what I was capable of and, you know, she didn't let me settle for anything less. Um, and she made sure my teachers expected the most out of me and, and knew who I was before I even got there, you know? And so um, that, that path was really helped by my home and family support quite a bit. That's, that's fantastic. So in, during your elementary school years, what did teachers notice about you? For one, they noticed that I was very talkative. (laughs) So that was my problem in school, (laughs) that I could not be quiet. So I was one that, yes, I, you know, I finished with my work really early, but mostly so that I could talk to other people and distract them. (laughs) So when I got in trouble at school, it was usually for talking way too much and, um, you know, being a class clown and that kind of thing. I, I spent a lot of time trying to make other people laugh and, um, you know, I, I would say that I was recognized quite a bit for leadership and for, um, you know, I think in high school, I was, well, you asked about elementary school, but I'm thinking in high school, I was voted sure, sure. all around. And so there was, there was a lot of, um, you know, things that I think my teachers helped kind of pushed me along the path forward with like they encouraged me to join um, student government and, and get involved in, in those organizations that really helped hone my leadership skills and really got you know what you can't really get into some of these big state schools without having a lot of those experiences and so really grateful for all the teachers and that pushed me is in addition to my family absolutely were there any subjects that you gravitated toward were, was there a particular topic or subject that you really just enjoyed learning about you know, that's really tough because I was kind of a, uh, you know, I will say that I excelled in math. Um, I really enjoyed it. You know, I got to, because again, with my mom advocating for me to, um, you know, take those higher level courses pretty early, I was taking algebra one in eighth grade and it put me on that track in high school to where I could take pre-calculus, geometry and pre-calculus really early. And so, you know, I really enjoyed doing math. It was challenging and it was, there was rules to it. It made sense. And it was, it was, it it was a routine. And I like that routine of being able to do something over and over again. Um, But, you know, I, I would argue though, that I was really a jack of all trades because, you know, I enjoyed math and did well in it, but I also, you know, really love to read and write. And I remember being recognized quite a bit for um, my um, writing. I, I think I won a few awards, one in, in a civics class about writing something about, you know, what it meant to be an American citizen. So, and I was also a musician. I played the piano for a few years. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it, it was always kind of 
doing everything. And that was frustrating for me because I wanted, I wanted to do one thing and focus on it and like grow in that area. I wanted to have a, a field, you know, I think that's contributes yeah. to why today I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. Right. And I use mixed methods because I just cannot commit to one thing because I've always <laughs> kind of been interested in doing it all, trying to do too much. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, I just want to do it all. And I yeah. remember saying that to my dissertation advisor, my first year in the program, when he's asking me, you know, kind of what, what do you see yourself gravitating toward? You know, do you want to do quantitative methods, qualitative methods? And I remember telling him, you know, I want to do both. I want to, I want to be good at both. I want to, (laughs) I think you need both to really answer questions well, you know? And so, you know, that comes with its, its, you know, benefits and (laughs) drawbacks, you know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, because you, you know, you feel like there's always this, this feeling that, oh, I can be better in one area if I can just focus on it. But, um, yeah, I don't know how well it pays off to do, you know, it's just these, these right. trade-offs that you have to make. So. Absolutely. And we'll get to talk a little bit more about your college experience okay. and that the kind of the feeling like you, you, you did interdisciplinary studies. And so you kind of mm-hmm. uh, have that, that vibe of Jack of all trades. Um, mm-hmm. But we want to know a little bit more about your high school experience. Can you talk to us about that? And what was that like? You mentioned a little bit uh, during the interview. Yeah. High school. High school was interesting. I, I went through more. I would say it was harder because mm. um, I was going through um, some challenging stuff at home, you know, going through my, my parents were getting a divorce through high school. And so I was kind of left hanging in the balance. there, trying to figure it out on my own in high mm. school. Um, so, you know, I feel like I um, I let things slip. You know, I let my academics slip in high school. Um, I remember getting a letter from Carolina, actually, after I was accepted saying, hey, your grades are slipping. We've accepted you, but Mm. if you don't get back on the straight and narrow, we can rescind our acceptance. And that, I think, scared me straight again because I was like, oh my goodness, then I would have to stay here, you know, and I know that in my hometown, there's very little opportunity for um, social mobility, you know, if you're is the the your zip code there really predicts you know your 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 um I'm sorry your your family's income there really predicts your later life income you know it's just a place wow. that re reproduces you know poverty so that scared me you know um mm-hmm. but I will say you know high school I I did a lot again you know I was try I was student body president I was you know ninth tenth 11th grade class presidents. I was in, you know, the National Honor Society and Beta Club and, you know, all did it all, played sports and was in, you know, did IB art and, you know, traveled with different teams. I mean, it was, I did it all, but also, you know, I, um, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I did everything well because I, I tried to do so much and was having all kinds of challenges at home. So mm-hmm. um, it, high school was a reckoning for me where I had to decide who I was going to be, you know, was I going to kind of fall back into these patterns um, or these new patterns really for me and not go anywhere? Or was I going to get my life together and keep moving forward? So that oh. I, I would say that high school experience has really shaped um, 
I, I would say my work ethic, <laughs> you know, when I, when I saw that I, I really had a lot to lose, you know, you know, everything that I'd worked for at that point, you know, could be lost, you know, if I couldn't get it together. So that was really, really a turning point for me. Absolutely. Were you involved in a lot of activities during high school? Yeah. I, like I said, I was in everything. I was the ninth, 10th and 11th grade class president. Um, and then I was also as a senior, the student body president. Um, I remember being on the homecoming court. I played basketball. I ran track. I played, what else did I play in high school? Um, I remember being like on the powder puff team, <laughs> um, <laughs> playing powder puff football. Um, I was being, a, I was a part of the national honor society, is it the national honor society, all these clubs. Are, yeah. Yeah. So, so many things. I remember I was staying after school every day to be a part of some activity. I remember being invited back to my eighth grade graduation as a guest speaker to oh, go wow. back and present to them. Yep. Yeah. Which was really an honor, you know, mm-hmm. because they were really proud of what I'd gone on and been able to, was able to accomplish. Um, I was an IB student. I was um, just, I just did it all. I, I was, did a lot of community service. Um, yeah. It was just a little bit of everything again. Yeah. So doing but I was also bit. had also been conditioned to do those things, right? Oh. By the time I'd gotten to high school, yeah. you know, my mom, you know, I, I'm telling you, there was this expectation in my home that I would go and do everything, right? Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. be strong in academics and I was going to get involved because I had to make it to college. I had to make it out of my hometown, right? right. So by the time I got into high school, it was second nature. And I knew that that was just the expectation. I needed to be involved in everything. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so you talked to us, talked to us about your high school experience. You talked about um, what involvement you had in high school. As you approached graduation, did you have a list of colleges you wanted to attend, or did you talk to a counselor about what colleges you wanted to possibly attend? Yeah. So it's really interesting. I think um, I think by the I had gone to schools throughout from K twelve that were predominantly white. Um, and, you know, many of the students in, in the, those schools, many of the white students were wealthy, right? It was very mm-hmm. clear racial class lines. And I wanted a different experience when I went to college. I, I wanted to go to a predominantly black school, honestly. So I applied to Howard and I applied to Spelman. And I remember for, for the longest time, those were my top two choices. Mm-hmm. But at the, in the UNC Chapel Hill was the third school that I applied to. And the reason that I decided to apply to it was because of my experience at Project Uplift, which oh. is a program that um, UNC puts on for black students. I can't remember if it's just, it, minority students in their junior year of high school where they come to campus and they get immersed in like the black campus culture of college. And mm-hmm. when I when I went to Project Uplift, they, we stayed overnight, you know, got to meet a lot of students, high school students from all over the state and a lot of black college students at Carolina. And that experience, it was like, oh yeah, I got to apply here because I want to be a part of that at UNC. So that, so those are the, that, those are the, that was the reason I actually applied to UNC. Otherwise, I don't know that I would have because I, I was really interested in going to HBCU. Right on. So we kind of touched a bit, a little bit about your decision to attend uh, UNC at Chapel Hill. Uh, and were there any other additional factors on top of that decision? Where was, was there a particular thing that pulled you to that campus or pulled you to, to apply there? 
Um, it, 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 it most a lot of it was Carolina's reputation. You know, it was we. I grew up loving UNC, loving the Tar Heels, loving. Oh, right, yeah. You know, and, <laughs> um, so outside of Project Uplift, you know, it was just it felt like the you know a dream to get accepted into mm, UNC. Yeah. Um. So I was thrilled about going. I like that it was close to home. I like that it was more affordable. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there, there, those were the other factors that played a role in, in my choosing to go there. But I would say when I attended Project Uplift here, I fell in love. I got to see the Greek fraternities and sororities perform. Um, I got to, uh, we did lawn games in the quad and all had all these challenges. I got to experience dorm life and what that was like. And that just really... I fell in love with the campus. It was just beautiful. You know, I think I probably visited in springtime, like around this time of year when you can just, you know, everything is in bloom. Chipmunks are running around. Like it was just, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it was like a fairy tale land, you know, That's and I, wonderful. you know, and I was from such a rural area mm. that even though Chapel Hill is by no means a city, right. It mm-hmm. felt like I was driving into a city because I was so mm. used to a rural area. Like yes. I remember seeing what, what I thought was like, I, I don't know what it was, but it was like UNC hospitals. Right. And I was driving in and once you ride over the hill where you're in Pitts in Pittsburgh, where you kind of get into Chapel Hill, you can like see it uh-huh. from a distance. I was like, Oh wow. Look at all those tall buildings, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like a real country girl, you know, so, <laughs> Chapel Hill was the city to me. So it's so sad. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> but I did, and I made lasting friendships at Project Uplift mm. with folks who would be my peers when I got there and who are my line sisters today, you know. So it, 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 that continuity has been has been awesome. And then to go to a school where, you know, everybody has that same, uh, many folks have that same kind of homegrown experience right that same kind of north carolina experience has been was really great that is wonderful uh dr Brittany murray we're going to take a 10 second break And we are back with Dr. Brittany Murray, a Trio McNair alum from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, Dr. Murray, you've been talking to us about your high school experience, your decision to kind of whittle down what college you wanna, wanted to ultimately attend, and you picked UNC at Chapel Hill. Um, talk to us about that experience. You decided to attend UN, UNCCH. Uh, what was that experience mm-hmm. like? Oh, it was the best experience. You know how everybody says, enjoy your undergraduate years because you'll never get them back. Whoo, boy, did they mean it. <laughs> Life has not been the same since I left undergrad. You know, bills right. just don't stop. You know, kids don't stop. But oh, yeah. I really, you know, I really look back on those years fondly. I made some of the best friendships, you know, 
that there is lasting friendships that I still mm-hmm. have today. I mean, I was just exposed to so many different people and new ideas. And it just, you know, really blew my mind. You know, I, I took classes with just some really incredible professors. Um, you know, I had a really fantastic experience um, at UNC. <laughs> It, it was it was such a personal journey, right? I learned um, I learned who I was at UNC. I grew up there, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Franklin Street, find me. I remember I, when I was there. Um, Obama was elected while I was at UNC, and so mm. I remember we all rushed Franklin Street. You know, I rushed. I, I was there in the years of Tyler Hansbro and Ty Lawson, and so we got to rush Franklin Street a few times for some NCAA championships or and mm-hmm. some wins over Duke. You mm-hmm. know, I, I look back and I think about the Halloweens on Franklin Street and and dressing up. And I was a a, a resident advisor, so I got to meet great students and. Um, you know, just being around really bright people that, that challenged me. Like I told you, I was a country yeah. girl, you know, and so all I knew was church and, <laughs> you know, just, uh, you know, very re- the, like the ideas I had about life were reinforced by the community mm. that I was in. Right. So I just yeah. couldn't think outside of that until I got in a place that exposed me to the rest of the world, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to adjust this next question. I'm going to just change it up a little bit. Uh, because you talked to us about your social connections. What did these social connections teach you about you? Mm. Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I have uh, some visitors coming in. Oh, yeah, no, have, yeah. Okay. If they want to say hi on the podcast, they certainly can. Okay. Yes, I'm. Okay, you have to take turns. Come here. Do you want to say hello on the podcast? You want to say hello? Hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? Why are we out? Oh, you can't. He can't hear you because you're in my head. He can't. You're in my headphones. <laughs> he says hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the, the time for twin quarreling and uh, uh, about not sharing. They're into Minecraft right now. So. Oh. They they're wonderful at that age, aren't they? We're into <laughs> Minecraft. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm I'm thankful for my. It's a gift and a curse, you know. Sometimes I'm like, thank goodness for Minecraft. Other times I'm like, guys, it, you have to get off the game for just a little bit. Can you just right. come and say hello? <laughs> so great. great. That's been our also our alternative education this year. They've got a lot of Minecraft. <laughs> It works wonders. It certainly does. <laughs> yes, it does. I, I'm fine with it. It's like whatever gets us through at this point. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot to, to ask you about what it, what you learned about yourself with these social connections. But if you want to briefly mention uh, your peers and any professional connections that you made and then talk about how what 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 they've taught you about you. Yeah. Um. You know, I I think about (laughs) my mentors um, when I think about some of those connections that I made. And Mm -hmm. I had some really uh, fantastic mentors while I was at UNC. And one that stands out was um, Dr. Bradley Hammer, who I took a class with as a freshman and then tried to take as many classes with as I could because he was just a fantastic professor and also just um, 
believed in me, you know, and that, yeah. I mean, and really took time and, and with me and, you know, told me, really showed me all, all the potential that I had, you know, I didn't know what I was capable of, you know, I, I honestly yeah. didn't. And it, he just really poured into me. And I mean, hour long conversations, you know, about life, you know, about what he could see me doing in the future, strategizing about how to get there. Right. I mean, just countless hours. Um, and that I think, you know, he changed the, he absolutely changed the way that I looked at myself, you know, because I struggled when I got to UNC in terms of classes, right? It was a different level of rigor than I was used to. Mm -hmm. I was used to things coming really naturally to me and I had to work to get every, you know, A that I got at Carol. I had to work really hard, but I didn't always do that. You know, I, I, I struggled um, at my first, especially my first couple of years at UNC. Um, And so, you know, I was in some ways I was giving up on myself and Mm -hmm. he wouldn't let me do that. And you know, he saw me for who I was. He saw me as this person who had, who couldn't be, um, who had a hard time just like sliding into a career, right? Like, and so he was one of the ones that (laughs) actually introduced me to this idea of a PhD. Hmm. Um, Because, you know, he, I remember this, I remember what he, this conversation we had one time when he said, you know, you have so many, skills so and you have such nuanced passions and interests right and and experiences and I think the reason I, this was at a time when I, I just knew like, like probably every other student when I got to UNC I wanted to be in med school and I was struggling through my science classes mm. and he said I don't know that that's what you really want to do I mean it sounds good your parents have told me this is what you should do yeah um he said but I think part of your challenge is you want to do so much more like it, you might have a hard time sliding, like fitting your interest into this one thing that you would do every day. Right. It's, yeah. In some, some ways it's very vocational, right? You learn the Certainly. skill and you do it over and over again. Right. And so he, you know, he kind of opened me up to this idea that like, you know, I could do all the, I could intertwine my work in ways that, that intertwine my interest in service and, you know, curiosity and, um, and, and, and that like, science piece right like he like that is what I get to do now you know and so to think about um myself as this really complex person who couldn't fit into like one of these really standard careers like I he helped ease that frustration that I was having and showed me what was what I could do with it all right. That's I awesome. hope that makes sense. That was kind of oh, no, all, absolutely. all over that the place, but sounded super wonderful. And I think, okay. uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to make any edits on that though. For sure. <laughs> um, so as you're attending college, did you finally decide on a degree or program that you wanted to major in? And I know most students, the first year, they're not sure, but did you start to land on, uh, on a certain program? So, you know, when I came to UNC, I thought I was going to be pre-med and I, um, bounced around some majors. I, I, I think I was at one point in gender and sexuality studies. At one point I was a bio major. At one point, I, I, I mean, I was really all over the place. Um, mm. it, it, it really, I really needed my mentors to help me figure it out. Um, but ultimately, you know, it was 
my experiences with mentors, but also my involvement in like service work that helped me, that helped me figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to serve. I knew that there were issues that I was really concerned about. And, you know, I I was worried about inequality. You know, I was worried about uh, people being oppressed and Mm -hmm. being powerless. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, pretty early on, I'd gotten involved with a local community right outside of UNC Chapel Hill, the Northside community, which is the historically African-American Black town, right? In Mm -hmm. Chapel, one of the only ones in Black in Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's historically black community. Many of the elders and um, f- had worked at UNC Chapel Hill, and their ancestors were, um, you know, had, had served in some, most often slaves, <laughs> at, and built the university. Yeah. Um, so I remember getting really immersed in that community, and I remember th- one of the issues was that they were being pushed out um, because that land obviously is very valuable. And they were building these these high rise towers there. They're probably there now. I don't know if I can name them or not. But um, what that was going to do is going to push the property values way up and, and make a lot of people whose town, whose community that was have to leave. And so I remember getting really involved in that and 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 really learning then that that what drove me, what made me want to get out of bed every day, what I wanted to do was advocate for people and um, to work to um, it, it, to really dismantle so many of these um, systems that keep poor and black people marginalized. So um, I, you know, I wanted to learn what those were, you know, I wanted to study them. I wanted to understand the, the why and how they happen. Um, yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted my work to um, serve a purpose. And, and so when I got a sense for what I wanted to do, you know, I started leaning toward um, public policy as my intended major. And so I ultimately chose public policy as a result of my service work, as a result of the support from my mentors, but also as I got into the McNair program Mm -hmm. and kind of learned how, like how I could even make a difference, like or how, what my contribution could be in this space. And so McNair taught me that, Hey, I, 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 um, you know, th- this role actually looks a lot different than I ever could have uh, could have imagined. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I, I think that you've touched on some wonderful points there about uh, finding what you really wanted to do and then developing this interest and uh, researching and uh, looking at oppressed groups, marginalized groups. Uh, that's fascinating. And so you wanted to really delve into that area. Uh, mm-hmm. What really, I, I guess my core question would be, what finally sparked that interest? What, what was the what was the aha for you? Mm-hmm. So, I think the aha was looking at these um, social structures, right? So, like I, that, you know, learning about um, gentrification and learning that it was like a policy issue, right? Mm-hmm. Learning it was a structural issue that you know we could change if we wanted to learning it was that it was around housing values and housing costs and, and, and decisions that, that people were actively making that were putting people through this. Right. So I wanted to be a part of those conversations. I um, joined the UNC chapter of the NAACP and I was actually, I think vice president my junior year and president my senior year. Mm -hmm. And so we took on those issues. We, um, I remember taking a bus, little students to uh, 
to Raleigh with mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Barber to do HK on J or, um, and we also, I, we did went to Washington for a big March as well. Um, you know, but we worked really closely with our local NAACP chapter and really worked on um, amplifying the voices and trying to change the minds of, of some of the decision makers um, in that community. And, and those were the things that really sparked my interest in policy, understanding that these are act decisions that people are actively making, right? These are rules that we're actively enforcing and can tinker with and can change um, once we understand how it's affecting people. And so I wanted to be a part of that process. Um, and so I actually, I feel like all this happened in one summer. I remember Dr. Joseph Green, um, a friend of mine. So you talk about the importance of social connections earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine, Terrence Burgess, I should say Dr. Terrence Burgess, we both defended our dissertation in 2020. And he's now in his first year. He's assistant professor uh, at Michigan State University. Um, he said, hey, a, a mentor of mine is running for school board in Chapel Hill. You want, he needs some help with his election. You want to get involved. And so, you know, I kind of started trying to understand his platform. I was like, yeah, I'll, let's support him. And so we were canvassing and putting up posters and talking to people to, to support his campaign. And Dr. McNair was actually the director of TRIO programs at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he he pulled both my friend Terrence and me into the program and start talking about, hey, if this is what you're interested in, let me let me show you how research can actually help do this thing that you're trying to do. Oh, wow. And so Dr. McNair really made that link for me when I, you know, I said I knew I wanted to do something service oriented. I knew I wanted to, you know, um, to work on dismantling so many of these systems that keep people oppressed how do I do it? Right. I didn't know that answer. I thought, you know, my work with the NAACP, I thought the only way to do that was through organizing or through advocacy. But Dr. Green through McDaren said, well, let me show you another way. And he said this through research. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's how you really come to understand these issues and who they affect and how they affect people and to what extent. Right. Um, And so that really, honestly, I had no idea about research. I had no idea about that as a career. I I never understood that that's what professors even did. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that until I was introduced to um, the McNair program. And so that summer, he he pulled us in as part of his first cohort of huh. students at, at UNC. So I was yeah. a part of the first cohort of McNair at UNC. And that summer, I mean, he, they, he um, connected me with uh, the Carolina Population Center. So I was able to do an internship there. And so what I I began by by starting off with health disparities. Um, so my McNair paper was around, um, oh goodness, maternal health behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. So we're looking mm-hmm. at disparities in postpartum uh, weight gain and obesity it differences and racial differences. So I'm trying to understand why um, black women tended to gain more of their postpartum weight back than white women and, and looking at that as a comorbidity and how that affected um, later life outcomes. Um, and so that, I mean, that opportunity alone was huge for me. I got the training from Carolina Population Center. I got them, I'd met more mentors, right? Um, Jan Hendrickson Smith, who has mentored, you know, I'm sure dozens of students, right, and push them off into different graduate schools. Met Dr. Liana Richardson, who's now a, a, prof- a professor at UNC in, in I want to say she's in either public health or sociology, um, who's really, you know, just had a hand in kind of helping train me and see what's possible. 
Um, but yeah, McNair was just huge for exposing me to all these career paths. I was able to attend, uh, I guess we might get to some of this, but you know, yeah, sure, just no. the exposure was huge. Yeah. And you, as you perfect segue to this. So were you thinking about what sort of careers you can get uh, being in this field? Honestly, at that point, no, I, okay. I, I don't think I was thinking about the careers at that point. I just knew I was really interested in this idea of research. And I was trying to come to understand my identity in terms of being a researcher. And that was new and exciting to me at the time. And I, there, I, I realized that there was this huge, uh, all these skills that I needed to learn how to do that, mm-hmm. how to do. And I was excited about learning. And that's, that's really what started me on my path. I wasn't think yet thinking about careers. Yeah. Um, and I remember actually when I hit the job market in my senior year, I was still kind of all over the place with what I applied for. There was this really popular website that um, uh, people who were interested in um, service, they went to when they were trying to find jobs. It was Idealist. I don't know if it's still around. Idealist.org. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we go there and, um, you know, I, I remember applying to all these nonprofit positions and really never being quite successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I applied uh, to some policy positions, I, uh, Center for American Progress. And I actually accept, got that job. I didn't accept it, but I did get that job. And, um, you know, I was also just applying to random stuff because I was a senior and I was anxious about <laughs> what I would do next. But ultimately, <laughs> I did apply to uh, Teach yeah. for America and yeah. got it and knew I wanted to going to be hands-on in a community and learn about these issues um, up front. So. Absolutely. You you also decided at this point that you wanted to pursue a doctoral program. Can you talk to us about that decision and why, where did that desire come from to, to get a doctorate? So McNair. Okay. (laughs) Which is perfect to the next question too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I didn't see, like I said, I am coming to identify as a researcher at that point, but you know, I would say I didn't know how to get there until, until I didn't know that that's what I needed, wanted to do until McNair. I also didn't know how to do it until McNair. Right. So they showed me that uh, you should go and get your PhD. We're going to provide all these resources for you to be able to do that. Um, you know, so all of that, even just understanding once you do want to apply to a PhD, they provided so much help and training around how to do it, how to reach out to people that you might potentially want to work with first and, um, you know, GRE prep, and it, it, there were so many resources they provided and, and really said, like, this is a pathway that you could go down. Absolutely. Talk to us about your experience with Trio McNair. What did you like about it? Oh, I loved, I loved my experience. Uh, we, I mean, it was the, we went to conferences together. I remember we went all the way to Madison, Wisconsin, I think for a conference. And it was just, it was really the camaraderie in the program. You know, it, we just had so much fun together. It was fun to get to travel with the group. I remember we went on a camping trip one time, just like as a team building thing. They took us to Asheville and we actually camped outside overnight. I have some of my best memories from college you know, with do in doing stuff with McNair, it was just so much fun. Again, I built some of my best relationships there. My friendship with uh, Dr. Terrence Burgess, uh, you know, really bloomed there when in the McNair program, we have so many shared memories. Um, you know, it was really great to, to be taken seriously, I think. As, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I, you know, that was my first time really being taken seriously as a, as a scholar, as, mm-hmm. 
as a as a as a researcher, as um, you know, someone who had something important to offer. Yeah, you know, um, and so I, I think it was just all of it. You know, being able providing the funding for me to right. do my research, right? That that communicated that you cared about what I was interested in, right? This has some weight and you want to put some money behind it, you know? All the training that I was being provided. So part of my, um, they connect me with the Carolina Population Center and they, I mean, trained me to use SAS. They trained me to, um, you know, do all kinds of data viz and, and run analyses and um, write, right? Like people were pouring into my writing and, you know, uh, helping me learn what this whole thing looks like, finding money for me to go and present at different conferences. Um, it was just an, an incredible experience all around. Absolutely. So who were your mentors during your time in Trio McNair? Uh, I, I definitely Dr. Green. Dr. Green is still a mentor. I reach out to him every few years now just, just to check in and see how things are going. Um, Jan Hendrickson-Smith, uh, who was the um, training program director back in the day at the Carolina Population Center, again, has mentored so many people. Also, um, my Dr. Hammer, actually, who I believe is still at UNC, he was my personal mentor. And then mm-hmm. we both kind of, I, I said, you know, I said, I remember introducing him to Dr. Green and saying, you know, this guy really would just be a huge asset to the program. And so he started serving as a mentor for McNair. And so he got to continue working with me there. And, um, and also Dr. Liana Richardson, who was just, you know, really helped me in learning how to navigate this world. So this research world. So those were my early mentors and undergrad, especially during that time in McNair. Wonderful. So you went on to pursue this degree in PhD in education with a focus on policy. What is it about policy? And I know you touched on it earlier that really speaks to you about dismantling uh, systems of mm-hmm. oppression and other things, mm-hmm. but what really speaks to you about this work? Mm-hmm. I think policy is so much fun because it's really a way to tinker with society, right? Like mm. you get to change little things here and there about how we do things. Um, and you, you know, and it has an impact on people's behaviors, right? So like it gets, you can imagine the world that you want to live in and you can think about what it would take to get there and it provides you this pathway to do it. So I, I've always, um, you know, I, since I started, I've been drawn to policy um, as a way to really create the world that I would like to see. Wonderful. It's like Minecraft, right? <laughs> Very much like Minecraft. You build your society. Your... <laughs> I like the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> that was really good. But yes, and so the reason I went with education policy, like I started out thinking about health disparities. Um, at doing Teach for America just you know, really opened me up to the world, you know, to educational disparities and Absolutely. realizing how consequential that was for every single area in our lives, you know? Yeah. And so I, I was in, uh, I did Teach for America in Memphis in 2011, 2012, 2013, those years. Awesome. And it was just, it was an exciting place to teach at the time because of all the educational policy changes and reforms that were going on at the time you had the, uh, it, I was in a turnaround I was in, um, you know, in a turnaround school district, you know, they had the achievement school district that had taken over many of the schools in Memphis at the time. Um, I was in an innovative zone schools that kind of had the flexibility of a charter, but was still public. And 
they had the teacher effective initiatives going on. So they were experimenting with teacher evaluation and teacher merit pay. And it was just like an explosion of education policy reforms. And I was a product of that. Right. And so I said, this is, this is my world right here, you know? Wonderful. So doctoral programs are typically very, very daunting uh, for first generation students. What challenges did you face and how did you overcome them? Mm. I think my I was um, kind of a non-traditional student. So in addition to being first gen, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's tough, right? Because you're trying to figure out the norms and what's expected of you or what people call the hidden curriculum. Um, I, but I, I and but I also had these additional challenges because I was a new parent when I was doing my PhD program. I'd had my twins. My twins were one when I started the program. And in my oh, first wow. year, I was actually pregnant with my third baby. So, oh, wow. you know, they grew up in my PhD program <laughs> with me. <laughs> um, you know, I did my first year of classes pregnant with Wyatt. And so my grandma always jokes that he's already finished his first year of his PhD. So it's <laughs> 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 so funny because he is he was an early reader and everything too. Oh wow. Right. Yeah. He started reading yeah. at like three years old. And my grandma's like, see that PhD. <laughs> <laughs> that really helped out. Yeah, yeah. But um, I had a non-traditional experience. I was a parent, you know, and I had a commute. So I lived in right outside of Greensboro and was driving over an hour to get to Chapel Hill every day that I had classes. And so, um, you know, managing a home and a household, I did not have the traditional experience. So it made overcoming those first gen challenges even harder. But the thing that made the difference for me was having great mentorship even in my PhD program, you know, I had my advisor, Dr. Thurston Domino, I mean, was just fantastic. I mean, again, I spoke the the most, the thing about mentorship that has really been influential in my life Mm. is when my mentors can see something in me that I cannot yet see in myself. Mm. And they helped me get to that vision. And my advisor, I didn't go to grad school thinking, oh, I want to be a professor. I didn't go to get my PhD thinking that that's what I would end up doing. I mm-hmm. thought I would get my PhD and perhaps move back to Memphis and get involved at district central office and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe do some data evaluation work in a district to kind of help inform some policy changes. But, you know, my 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 advisor said that I can see you. Yeah, I could see you doing that, but I could also see you contributing in these ways. Right. I can see right. you contributing to 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 how we understand the field and, you know, um, communicating these recommendations across the country. Right. And and teaching other people and inspiring other people because he felt like I was this dynamic person and scholar and him seeing all that in me. And I, you know, I bought into his vision for me. Right. And that's what made the difference. You know, um, he made, I'm telling you that mentorship is huge. He, he made funding available for me to be able to pursue, you know, to present at conferences throughout my um, PhD and, you know, taught me, connected me with like, so much of this is networking, right? You know, he connected me with so many people that had similar interests and, you know, all of those things that just that, that real, um, what do you call it? apprentice model right that Mm, that that was huge for me um and just bringing me into his research and and giving me the freedom to kind of take it in my own direction as needed I mean I I just had all of this I you know I started this conversation talking about my mom and how she had this vision for me that I didn't quite have for myself yet right but that really has been a consistent theme in my life you know from Dr. Hammer 
in undergrad, seeing more from me, from my advisor in graduate school, Dr. Dama, seeing me doing what I'm doing now. And here I am. And I'm just so in- incredibly grateful uh, for all that mentorship and, and, and all those opportunities that they opened up for me as I couldn't have, I couldn't have imagined it for myself. Absolutely. I love that you already touched on. Yeah. I love that you touched on what prepared you for the doctoral program and the work ahead. Can you talk to mm-hmm. us a little bit about um, what other preparation that you did in order to be, you know, to feel ready or, or, or did you feel ready when you were already in it or halfway into the program? Um, I felt like I had, I, you know, I, there's always this imposter syndrome, you know, like going through classes and never feeling like you've read enough, you know, never feeling like your research is strong enough, you know, that your writing is clear enough. There, you know, worrying at every conference, you know, this is, it is anxiety inducing work, you know, in a lot of sense, especially because there's this pressure in graduate school to publish. There's this pressure, you know, so much pressure because, you know, you feel like your ability to secure a job on the other end is contingent upon it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, So battling those insecurities was tough, you know, feeling like I belong there. That, that was tough. I didn't feel like I was a traditional student, right? I didn't feel like, you know, I didn't know anybody who had, you know, um, I didn't know, I didn't have anybody in my family who had done this before, right? So we didn't, nobody could coach me through that kind of thing, you know? First generation, right? It, 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 nobody has set that, that trail for you. So Mm -hmm. you're very much a trailblazer. You're kind of setting the example as you go. Yeah. And I worried constantly about not being good enough Mm. um, because Mm. I didn't, I, again, I didn't see myself, I couldn't see myself doing it, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. having to trust my advisor's vision that I can do this, right? Yeah. Like it, it takes other people believing in you and for you to like fake it until you make it or you to believe their vision <laughs> <laughs> until you can have your own. Um, Definitely. So that preparation piece was huge. And, and, and looking back though, you know, I just... I hope this encourages someone who may be in a PhD program now. I, I just hope that you recognize all of the um, all of the assets that your experience brings. Yeah. You know, that is just completely new. I didn't understand then that my perspective, just my being there, was powerful. Right, like um, just the with the experiences I had that are underrepresented in the academy. Right, that is huge. Um, you know, experiences from you know from my own K-12 experience to my work experience, right? All of that was invaluable to bring to the program and that I had, I had, and I'm reminding myself now that I still have so much to offer to this space. So. Absolutely. Wonderful. You, and you did it. You graduated with your doctoral program. You currently serve Mm -hmm. as an assistant professor of educational studies and political science uh, for the departments of educational studies and political science at Davidson college. Uh, Mm -hmm. Talk to us about your role. What does that mean? And what does it entail? Yeah, I'm still figuring that out. You know? <laughs> I'm still figuring out. And it's been harder to figure out since I've done my first year virtually. Um, but yeah, I, I have just been really humbled by this experience so far and getting to have this job has been incredible. I mean, it's a huge amount of responsibility, but it is incredibly rewarding. Like getting to get in front of students and you know, <laughs> just share in their brilliance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, 
um, to get to think through questions with students, right? To get to think through these issues that seem, you know, these wicked problems, right? That just seem too big to answer, to get to strategize with a group of brilliant students every day is just a huge reward, you know? Um, so, I, you know, I see my job as, as facilitating learning, right? I see my job as, you know, exposing them to new information, um, to new opportunities to learn and apply that information into people who can do even more for them than I can. Um, and also to see, do what so many mentors have done for me. And that is to see more in them that they can see in themselves and imagine what they can be and encourage and push them, them toward it. And just, you know, really thinking about the wildest possible dreams for them. So, you know, I think, I think a, a lot of my role here. So the, at Davidson college, we are a, um, small liberal arts college and they really, it's really a wonderful place to be because they emphasize both teaching and research here, you know? So I feel like I'm valued just as much here for my teaching as I am as my research, which is really wonderful for me because I've always felt like I was an educator first Mm -hmm. and, you know, being able to do research also is is a really big bonus. I've been able to keep up with my research collaborations and, giving, you know, the resources to be able to continue to fund my own research. And um, it's, I'm, I'm really looking forward uh, to this summer uh, where I get to uh, continue building out my research agenda and, and moving some things forward. But um, I really, it, it feels like a dream to be able to, you know, you have the flexibility to kind of create your own schedule, to do fun stuff like talking to you <laughs> and you, you know, caring what I have to say, you know. It's all amazing people. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I'm, I'm really, I, I just love it. I love my job. I'm just cannot believe that I'm here and I'm just so grateful to so many people for putting me in place here. And I hope, I hope that I can, you know, pass, um, what do you call it? Pay this forward, you know, to other students. So. Fantastic. In what ways are you hoping to influence the conversations surrounding education and policy? Oh, you know, I am one one thing that I so I study parents in school inequality. I think about the ways that um, privileged or, or affluent and white parents can mm-hmm. um, can uh, help uh, that really work collectively can work collectively to reinforce Certainly. inequality in schools. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real departure from the ways in education policy. We typically think about parents and families in schools, right. you know, a lot of the uh, narrative, a lot of the language is that black families don't do enough, right? Black parents need to get more involved. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of um, what we see in our policies, right? You have the title one policies and, things that are targeted to increase parent involvement among black families, but mm-hmm. not considering all of the ways that um, or not considering or valuing the ways that black parents do so much for their children and care so much and are some of the most, in, you know, <laughs> committed um, and, um, you know, aspirational about their kids' educations, right? But it's not really captured in our educational policies because Black parents don't engage in the same ways as, as middle-class white parents might engage, you know? Um, it doesn't mean that they're not involved. It means that the school values a specific type of involvement, right? And that specific type of involvement 
is what I study. And what I've learned is that sometimes that can reinforce inequality in itself. Wow. Think about the fundraising that happens in, in, in really advantaged PTAs and really wealthy schools across the country are increasing these resources that relatively privileged students have mm-hmm. that schools down the street don't have, right? Or within schools, what happens, um, you know, when a lot of that money that is fundraised is used to only support students um, that have certain, uh, that might be in certain programs, right? Or might be the children of the parents that are in these programs or might, how they can use their influence and sway in these schools to actually get unfair advantages in schools. So I think that shift in the narrative around, um, you know, perhaps we should be thinking about parents differently in schools mm-hmm. and, and let's move mm-hmm. this deficit. Let's shift away from this deficit based language around black families in schools and start um, really honoring and valuing the ways that fam- the diverse ways that families contribute to their kids' educations. Absolutely. Thank you for that insight. It's it's definitely valuable. And I think audience members are really, or our audience anyway, they're very grateful to hear about the different perspectives and the researchers uh, research going behind uh, that various of the alumni bring. Um, mm-hmm. With higher education, it's facing a lot of scrutiny now, more I think more than ever, uh, over its relevance, high cost and training. In your opinion, what changes, if any, should be made to the college experience? Well, I think COVID is making us come face to face with a lot of those changes that that should probably happen in school and realizing that, hey, you know, we weren't really very accessible (laughs) to many students in the ways that we typically run things. right? Right. So I'm really excited to think about innovation in this particular moment and how we make sure that our classes are accessible to students who may have disabilities, you know, who cannot be present every month, you know, Monday through Friday in a classroom building, right? How do we still make sure that what we're teaching and, you know, is accessible to diverse learners? Um, you know, how do we incorporate technology into our, you know, maybe the, the old school lecture is, is played out now, right? Like maybe yeah. we have to yeah. learn how to in, infuse technology to make sure that it reaches students who have to work, you know, and students, if you can't be there and you have to work and you have to support a family that, right. you know, it doesn't preclude, it doesn't exclude you from this experience, right? So how do we, how do we um, think differently about how uh, learning happens, right? Where it happens. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, 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 you know, I've had to think differently about my classes this year and realize I already come with this in, as a philosophy that I'm a facilitator of their learning, mm-hmm. but like, thinking about the classroom much broader than like Davidson College, right? But thinking about it in like the community of Charlotte, right? Or thinking about it wherever they might be at their laptop. Mm -hmm. So I've had to uh, think about my own education policy course this year. And what the thing I'm most proud of is that, you know, they had to go out and kind of talk to members of their own community about issues of education policy. And they were each given some money to go out and interview people and I feel like they learned more from those interviews than I could have ever taught them about education policy, right? They cr- created their own interview guides, create, you know, did their own analysis of the interviews. And, you know, that was huge. And, and I think you don't have to be in person on Davidson College campus to do that kind of thing, right? right. So right. I think, um, you know, I think policy provides a real opportunity to do this kind of work, right? Because people are living in communities that need change. So how do you get students invested in, you know, making change in their communities and use that as, as part of the learning experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderfully said. What advice 
do you have for students wanting to pursue a higher education degree, both undergraduate or doctoral? That's a good question. Um, find your people. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> I think I mean that in a couple of ways. Uh, for one, I think it's find the right people who are going to support you through that. Um, you know, whether it be at home, whether it be in that actual school, you know, finding the mentorship that it's going to take to get through it. Um, but also, I, I think find the people that you that make that inspire you, that drive you and what ask yourself, what are they doing? You know, and, and is that 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 helps you figure out what you should be doing, what gets you up out of the bed in the mornings, what really drives you. Um, I think it's all about finding those people that make you tick, you know, um, and that speak to you and that speak to what you want to be, right? So, and that push you out of your comfort zone and um, help you think differently about yourself. Absolutely. That's wonderful advice. As we wrap up the podcast, uh, Dr. Brittany Murray, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. And we appreciate all the sage wisdom and, and information that you've given us. But would you like to take a moment to recognize individuals, whether they're mentors, friends, or family members uh, that you want to recognize on the podcast? Yeah, I, I, I could go through... <laughs> But I am so grateful um, to, uh, you know, family for their continued support through some really challenging years, you know, who have been honestly my consistent cheerleaders and babysitters, <laughs> you know, from my mother <laughs> to my grandmother, you know, uh, uncles and, and aunts. Um, I also want to thank, you know, um, you know, a, a very good friend of mine uh, who's actually finishing up his PhD right now, um, uh, Jerry Wilson. He's also at UNC coming out of the policy program who's now in Charlotte. And we have just been tag teaming this pandemic parenting thing. And it's been awesome to have that kind of support. When I said bind your people, I really mean it. Yeah. And, you know, he is one of my one of my people. Um, in addition to my like, you know, small, you know, cohort of students that, that uh, at UNC, um, finishing or just recently finished their PhD at UNC in, in education policy and school improvement, New, newly minted Dr. James Sadler and soon to be uh, James Carter and Dr. Michael Little, who is uh, down the street at North Carolina State University, just a really a great group of colleagues to have throughout this, this journey. Um, as well, and I, you know, and my advisor, I, I spoke about him a little bit, but I just can't say enough about how he has really poured everything, you know, all of his time, energy, resources, everything into growing me as a, as a scholar. And it's really, I'm just so thankful, you know, it's really transformational, I would say, what his influence has been able to do in my life. And he's really, um, really just made sure I had every opportunity, you know, just really broken down barriers for me. So, um, you know, there's so many people that have had a role in this journey from, you know, I think about Dr. Green, who introduced me, and, 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 and Terrence Burgess, Dr. Terrence Burgess at MSU, who introduced me to McNair and, you know, said, hey, look at this program and the research, it lit my fire, you know, um, to uh, Jan Hendrickson-Smith and Dr. Leona Richardson, who played a key role in my early training, to my principal when I was a teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, um, Dr. Antonio Burt 
who, you know, <laughs> again, um, just had a, created amazing opportunities for me to be a teacher leader and my peers there. Um, and, you know, to Elsa Falkenberger and Sue Popkin at the Urban Institute, who, again, really pushed me out there and, and really thought that I was incredible and made me think that I could be great. Um, to my parenting partners, um, my great friends, Tiffany, uh, uh, Tiffany and Alicia and Kim, thank you so much for just being uh, wonderful parenting peers and helping me get through all these challenging times. So I told you I could go on and on, but yours. <laughs> it's almost therapeutic to go through this list of people. Yeah. There's just been so many, and, you know, you, I look at, I look at um, my own CV and I think about the people, you know, who have really mm, made it mm, possible. Mm. All of this, you know, nothing is done in isolation. It's all a community sure. effort. And so I'm really grateful. Well, Dr. Brittany Murray, again, graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for being on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. I hope we can do this again soon. Yes, I, I can't wait. Uh, please have me back anytime. Abs- I- uh, we got to have you back. We certainly got to okay. have you back. Um, <laughs> can you do us the huge honor in signing off for us? Yeah, sure. This is Dr. Brittany Murray, and I'm a proud alumna of the Trio McNair program from UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree and doctorate degree from UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm currently at Davidson College as an assistant professor of educational studies and political science. And y'all, I can really say that Trio works. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a Trio program? Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk Trio. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk Trio. We want to get your story to the public. What a great interview with Dr. Brittany Murray, Trio alum of the McNair program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for sharing your educational journey with us all. Remember, you too can be on the Let's Talk Trio podcast or you can nominate someone to be on the podcast. Send us your contact message or the person that you're wanting to nominate. Send us their information. Send it over to letstalktrio at gmail.com. Our email again is l-e-t-s-t-a-l-k-t-r-i-o at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of us via our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Once again, a huge thanks to our sponsors, Angelica Villalpando, Rosario O'Reilly, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for continuing to support the podcast. You too can be a patron of the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Head on over to Patreon, search for Let's Talk Trio. We have a variety of patron levels. Our beginning patron level starts at a dollar a month. A dollar a month goes a long way in supporting this podcast. I want to take a moment to thank the honorary members of Let's Talk Trio. Tony Ho, Scott Kendall, and Roderick Chambers. The Let's Talk Trio podcast team is John Russell, editor, music producer, tech advisor, and audio engineer. Amelia Castañeda, producer, script supervisor, social media manager, and marketing manager. Juan Rivas, executive producer and host. We thank you all so much for continuing to listen to the Let's Talk Trio podcast. We will catch you on the next episode.